Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. This crucial line from the 23rd Psalm isn't just about being able to eat anywhere in safety. It's about the courage to share a meal with the people you most despise. And sharing a meal also means dinner conversation, actual dialogue. This is Grace Archie with Jim Babka, sponsored by the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org, here on the AHO Radio Network. I'm your host, Bill Protzman. Growing up around my family table, money, religion, and politics were taboo. Gradually, as we all got older, that shifted. The conversations heated up, but mostly, they still came from a place of loving kindness. Today, we want to talk about inviting your enemy to dinner. Jim, isn't this the single most important move anyone could make right now? You know, I love that you started by quoting the 23rd Psalm. It is, uh, it really, this line really speaks to me that part of what we're supposed to do if we are Christians, and I think in general, this is a good practice for everybody to have, is to know people that are not like us, that don't necessarily share our values, and to discover who they are and why they are who they are. And, and I would say that you should try to do this because it's just good human practice and you might learn something. You might, you know, sometimes the things that are different about other people are actually the things that are most interesting. He you says practice. You, oh, yeah. We need practice, man. Talking with people who aren't like us. We need practice. Yeah. And I, I really want us to get into that today. That's where I want to go with this. So, I mean, this is, I, I know you about this whole thing. This is so fundamental to the way that things can work. What's the, what's the starting point here? How do we start this conversation? I mean, 23rd Psalm's a nice place, but let's, let's bring it to the real life. Okay. I, I think the biggest problem that we have right now in our culture, and it's been a longstanding problem, but because of social media, it's intensified pretty dramatically. And I'm not one of these guys that believes social media is all bad. I think there's tons of redeeming features to it. Sure. But I think the problem is the conflict machine. Uh, I would define the conflict machine in the following way a system to address social problems that divides members of societies into warring parties where there must be losers. And I want to put special emphasis on the end of it, a system to address social problems where there must be losers. I didn't say winners or losers. I said losers. Yeah. Someone has to lose in the conflict machine. It, the conflict machine, a better word for it, it's just a better word for our politics. Politics is what we normally say. And, and that kind of is like this innocuous statement, right? Oh, politics, you know, we're, we're going to vote. We're going to have elections. It's a democracy. It's all great, right? Sure. But right. conflict machine is how we do it. It's a winner-takes-all system. And if you get 50% plus one of the vote, you have the total control. You, get con you, you can chance. do anything you want. Right. And that anything you want recently means bashing the, the opposition over the heads, you know, instead of just maybe working together. I mean, I, the, the, this whole thing about dialogue, it's so important to me. How do we get back to dialogue? Is there a way that we can get into that through mediation or some other way, bring people back to the table? Yeah, you know, so there's a bit of conditioning that's gone on in the American system. It goes on in our schools. It goes on in our media that the other side's bad. And uh, the people who are operating the machine, so to speak, the people who are the heads of each of the respective parties, the intelligence community, whatnot, they want, it's almost like they want to keep you distracted. 
They, it's almost like they want to get you to focus on the minutiae and they really want you to focus on the things that'll get you fighting at each other instead of focusing on what they're doing or not doing or where the corruption's at. They really want to focus you in your energies. So there's this conditioning that goes on. And I think that the most important thing we have to do is, is uh, you know, obviously we start to be aware of it, but the step one is to just disobey, just disobey and start talking. Like, I, I consider what I'm about to say as an act of revolt. If you've, if you've ever complained about the media, if you've ever complained about social media, don't just simply say, well, it's bad. You can revolt by starting to have real dialogues with people who are not just like you. You have that ability. It's in your power and it's a revolt. It's literally a revolt against this thing where they're trying to get us to fight with each other. We had a bumper sticker here in Southern California a long time ago when, you know, freeway shootings were the thing. It said, keep honking, I'm reloading. And, uh, you know, I, I, I have no trouble talking with people who are not like me. I really don't. I kind of seek that out. But it's not a skill that a lot of us have right now. And, and I guess the first question that I would have is, outside of social media, how do you find people who disagree vehement, vehemently with you? Well, they exist. Uh, let me just be clear about that. They're, they are all over the place. And I am just, I, I, you know, true confession moment. I'm not the guy that's like running around looking to have conversations like this all the time. Uh, I've learned very, very well that lots of people are not prepared to have this conversation. How true. And, yeah. and I have trust issues. I have real trust issues. Like I, if, if I'm okay. So <laughs> people might get the impression from the fact that I'm sitting here behind this microphone or what I do for a living that I spend all my free time also talking about politics. And what happens is when I meet people and they find out this is what I do, I clam up because I feel like I have to have a certain level of rapport and trust with somebody before I'm going to start to reveal who I really am. Yeah. No, I'm like not trust, a big, right? yeah, I'm not a big casting my pearls before swine kind of guy. So in the admonitions that I'm making here today, full transparency here, I'm naked before you. I'm telling you that I need to do better at this. I want to figure out how to do this. Now, I will say, and people who, are, who know me really well will say that I'm very open to ideas, changing my mind when new evidence is presented. And so I have had these conversations and I've, uh, I've evolved and changed dramatically over the last 25 years. I'm, I'm the, the guy that I graduated, uh, that I finished college being is not the guy that I am today in any way, shape or form. I'm very radically different from that. And, and I can tell you in each case who it was that influenced me. So I, I am capable of this. I just, even I want to be better at it. And I want to encourage everyone to join me in that journey. There's a, um, a disincentive for this, I guess is the best way of saying it. We've all lost friends on social media. Mm -hmm. And I feel I'm sort of unique in that because I lose them by asking questions. I don't lose them by arguing with them. I just lose <laughs> them by asking, well, if that's so, Jim, then this, you know, how to explain to me, how does that work? And, I've gotten thrown out of a car dealership for asking too many questions right, right? at the point of sale, by by the way, signing right? the paperwork. And, and 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 it's like it's honest. It's it, on my part. I really want to know. And, and part of being a libertarian is understanding both sides in the duopoly, so that yes. you know kind of how things work. And yes. that's hard work, people. It's really hard to get people who think that you're a threat, or don't want to talk to you because they think you're a threat, 
to open up. And and so I've been cul-de-sac, you know, I've been shoved to the end of the of the road in many ways where I'm sort of alone. So yeah, and, and we're increasingly know, we're increasingly in this spot. And and it, it, I call this the problem of mediation. Yes, so you get yes. you're going to get your information one of, about someone else one of two ways. I'm going to find out about you, Bill, one of two ways. Okay, if I find out about you. I'm going to find out about you by talking to you. We meet, we get to know each other, we find out about each other. Or I'm going to find out about you through other people. What okay? other people so you, say. Exactly. Whether okay. or not it's true, by the way, but what other people say or write or infer. Okay, about so me. let's go back to the conflict machine where you've got these, these, these for, the, for the benefit of obtaining power, they're creating a battle or a contest where there have to be losers, right? Yeah, yeah. And people split into tribes and they begin fighting with one another uh, in these tribes. Now, what has happened, and this, I, I think that the system, the, the situation, you bring social media in step one, you look Donald Trump, step two, uh, and then step three, you have uh, the pandemic. Yes, and during those three things, we had a, a situation set up where people began to believe the existential stakes were so high and the divisions were so deep that they started separating. They stopped talking. They just friends, stopped talking, stopped talking yeah. to friends. So yeah. we've, we've had kind of a verbal civil war and probably everyone in the sound of my voice right now has lost a friend since 2016, since 2017. At least. Right? Yes. Everybody has. You can think of one person right now that you liked, they liked you, you got along, you're not talking to them anymore. And you know that the issue is politics. This is surprisingly common. And I can actually think of several. I can also think of people that I'm still talking to where I feel our relationship's been damaged. So getting that relationship to come back to the table, like to actually come to the dinner table is the objective here. How do we do that? I think you just simply have to, again, treat this like an act of defiance where you are attempting to connect or meet other people. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to, this is an even greater risk I'm going to take right now. Um, I was raised in a Christian right home. We were, you know, my, my, my family was fundamentalist Baptist. And uh, those were the views I took into my early adulthood. Right. Good people, right? I, I don't complain about my upbringing a bit. Exactly. I, I, uh, it's, it was, there was a lot of ways in which it was fantastic and, and helps me be who I am today. Exactly. Uh, the Bapt- I, I, By the way, the Baptist part has a very strong independent streak to it, right? It's like, you're not going to tell me what to do, right? That's right. Yeah. No hierarchy, the whole thing. And I don't even, uh, now I think they're, you know, they're weak even on that question. Okay. So, you know, the, my evolution goes kind of a lot of different directions. But one of the things that happened to me was that in 2000, I worked on the Harry Brown campaign. I was the press, press secretary. We had a young man in our office, uh, young man, he was a couple of years older than I was, uh, but that was young. Uh, we were, uh, he came to work, uh, late in the campaign. He lived in the DC area and, uh, his name was Robert and Robert was gay and Robert was promiscuously gay. Um, he was making lifestyle decisions that a, I wouldn't to this day have done. I mean, I think he was engaged in a lot of risky behavior. You're going to find out more about that in a second and B, um, he was, he was gay. And from my background, like, this is like, this is not, this is not acceptable. Right. Yeah. It just didn't, it didn't fit. There was no way. All right. So he was actually a pretty good worker. 
Um, he wasn't entirely reliable about showing up, but other than that, he was fantastic. He really was. He was, and he was a joy to work with and everybody liked him. And you could send him out to speak places too. He was a good looking fellow. You could send him out to speak places. Like he, he, he was, I think he had a future. You notice I'm speaking of in the past tense, right? Yes. Uh, but we, I actually was in charge of a nonprofit organization and I brought him back to come work with us. I, this is, I just started as the CEO of it. And I arranged for him to go with me to advanced media training. And I said goodbye to him. He got on the, uh, the Metro and I got in my car and I never saw Robert again. He died in his home days later at 36 years of age. He had health problems. I don't know whether they were related to the things that he was doing, but he had health problems. And I had no idea. None. Sorry, and I think That's... this was a complete surprise. Yeah. Okay. But here's what starts to happen. I now meet somebody and make a relationship and friendship. And by the way, he knew I was a Christian. And I make a, a relationship with him. And I was sad. I was, this bothered me. We had, in fact, we had to, the way that we had to find out took weeks. We didn't know what had happened. Like it was almost like he had disappeared. It took uh, his family ended up getting back in touch with us because we sent certified mail to the house to try to, to find him. Yeah, yeah. And they contacted us. And that loss. Now, I've met some other people along the way in the course of my career. Uh, I co-blogged with another gentleman by the name of Jason, who had a really profound impact on me. Another guy named John. Jason uh, was just his integrity on some of these questions. In fact, his views, some of the things I say came out of things I, I watched him write uh, later, a few years after these events happened. And my view evolved because I knew people, because I saw them as real people, because I saw their lives and who they were. And I believe that this contact matters. So what I'm going to suggest here is that the contact that I'm, I'm, I'm advocating is that if you put yourself in the position of exposing yourself, you put yourself in the position of saying, I'm going to speak my truth and be who I am to people who you're going to maybe get backlash and, and things, bad things are going to happen. If you continue to act in love, if you continue to just be authentic to who you are, but do it in a kind, respectful way, like these men did for me you're, you're going to end up speaking for or helping an entire sub subculture, an entire uh, race, an entire group of people. You sure. represent more than yourself in some at all, any, any yeah. part of it, right? Yeah. It, just, yeah. it adds like an inflection to who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine for a moment that you're not you, if you're listening to this, that you are a member of the KKK. <laughs> and after a meeting one night, this black man comes up to you and says, hey, Bill, I want to ask you a question. How is it that the Daryl Davis approach like that, that bold, can help all the rest of us who are still trying to get, you know, like put a toe in the pool of this yeah. giant conflict cesspool that we need to wade into? I love that you brought this up because... Daryl Davis has these conversations. He's reported about this. He's talked about the fact that he'll ask people after he's met them and got to know them after one or two uh, uh, meetings and, and say, you know, what is your opinion of black people? You know, and they'll be like, well, they're awful. They're this, they're that and the other. And he'll say, well, wait a minute. Don't you realize I'm sitting in front of you. I'm a black man too. And they will say something to the effect of, well, you're different. And he'll say, he'll say, how am I different? 
right? If you've ever seen Daryl Davis, he's black. He's definitely black. And he's a he jazz, black. you know, pianist and, you know, played with Chuck Berry and, in, 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 you know, later in Chuck Berry's career. Daryl Davis is black, okay? You can't miss it. You weren't going to make a mistake, okay? How am I different, he says. And I think I figured it out, Bill. I think I know exactly how he's different. I think I know what they mean. And, and that is that he was a guy who sat and listened. He was a guy that didn't judge them based on their bad behavior. He went and met them as human beings, talked to them as human beings, was willing to risk what the converse, how the conversation was going to go. And he's got what now, 26, 27 robes hanging in his closet over a 30-year career of doing this? That's courage. It is courage. It is courage. And, and so I'm saying to you that what these men did for me to help me understand a, a lifestyle that I've been raised to believe these are bad people with bad qualities. And this situation here with Daryl Davis, who's a much better exemplar and model than I of, of courage and stepping in and doing the right thing, that we have to have this ability to kind of begin speaking our truth in, in public settings and not to automatically dismiss people because they disagree with us. It, it, we can't simply say that people are stupid or evil. It's just, it's not, it's not going to cut it anymore. It's it not satisfactory. Fly. No. It, it, whatever, you know, swamp you just crawled out of, that kind of stuff doesn't fly even at the very lowest levels of understanding. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. It, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not acceptable, to be no. honest. And uh, Daryl Davis is a great example. Let's talk about another great example of that that can resonate for a lot of people around here. Uh, a guy who sat down regularly with folks that were the scum of the earth, the tax collectors, you know, the bill collectors, the folks who had diseases, and it was okay. How can we take You're the examples? I'm talking about Jesus. How can we take that example into, into our political debate today or whatever debate it might be? Yeah, I, I find this uh, really, really, this is, to me, this is one of the interesting things of the New Testament. Uh, this is perhaps one of the two or three most interesting things about the gospel is who Jesus chose to spend his time with right, and how right. he chose to spend it. It wasn't um, with the conflict machine. <laughs> no, no. Uh, you know, and his one brush with that goes poorly, right? Very bad. I mean, yep. Yeah. So, uh, well, the two, I mean, there's also the, 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 the situation where he said, render unto Caesar, right? He gets confronted there too. That's a political moment. But Jesus dined with tax collectors. And they were the lowest of low. I mean, these were people who were considered traitors to their own race and religion. These were the people who had sold out to the Romans instead of living like good Jews. Uh, imagine having an occupying power in the country, and they're collaborators. That's what these are. These are collaborators, and they got wealthy being collaborators. And so they were unclean. They were hated. They were loathed. And he went and dined with them. He approached lepers and healed them. He touched people who were unclean and even did it on the sabbath for pete's sake which was like the worst possible thing you could yeah, do the worst part, yeah can't do anything on the sabbath and um he his response when he was confronted on that was that the sabbath was made for man not the other way around so i you know let's let's put this in a modern lens I'm, you know we're talking nationalists communists racists the woke homophobes mandators cancelers democrats republicans yeah whoever doesn't think like you yeah. And whoever Whatever you think, by the way, is taking the country down the wrong path, right? Like, can we sit down and can we talk? That's the I think question. it's a good example to follow. It's 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 the question. I mean and and by the way, 
a homeless prophet had to go to their home to sit down with them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there were a few times where he was able to arrange a, a table with some people around it, not in the best of circumstances, but think about the humility that that took and the vulnerability that that took. I, I see it as a model. I really That's do. flipping phenomenal and definitely a model. And but I'm not sure to... that, yeah, I, but I, I think that there's a problem here that crops up. There's a legitimate question that gets asked in this, in this circumstance. And that is, what about the victims of like hateful speech and bad policies? Sure, because, you know, you, you align with someone in that position and they paint you into the same box. Yes. And, and there's this, this gotcha game that we play of built by association. Right. So one time somebody shook hands with bad person X and you then went into business with that person who shook the hand the one time. And now you're forever tainted. If that's the way we want it to be, how dare you even be friends with somebody who shook the hand of bad person X. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And this is by the way, what the, uh, uh, SPLC does. The Southern Poverty Law Center. Yes. Yes. They put out these reports that are entirely from top to bottom guilt by association. And then you'll see people come out on social media and say, I just checked and, you know, uh, I, you know, so-and-so is a a, a jerk and uh, I have 15 friends in common with them. What's wrong with you people? You know, now you're supposed to go look and see, am I allowed to be friends with this person? Yeah. It's like the whole comedy thing. What can you laugh about anymore? It's just, yeah. So yes, listen, I get, I want to say, first of all, I get it. I understand there may be some degree of nobility in this idea that we're trying to protect the victims of certain uh, prejudices and bigotries and attitudes. And, and so we're looking to do it. But if somebody, if, if these men had done the same thing to me, when I was, when I needed to go on a journey of discovery, I would not have figured out and grown the way I have and figured out the things I have. Okay. It's kind of there, but for the grace of God, go I. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, but I want to go further than this. I want to challenge these people directly. We're existing in an age of something called microaggressions. And I'm going to tell you, this is bullshit. There is no such thing as a microaggression. There's only aggression and not aggression. And what I mean by that is sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You, this was a phrase that we heard when we were young. And am I, when I raise this, am I being insensitive? No, I'm being realistic because you know what? Life's hard. And people don't understand, and they've only gotten information that's been mediated to them, as we discussed earlier. Right, right. right. And now you're the first representative of that view, and you have the opportunity to say, I'm going to show you that I'm actually a good person, and then I'm going to introduce you to other people who are just like me and show you they're good people, right? I'm going to be the exemplar. I'm going to show you what I am. But I want to ask a fundamental question about this, and that is, why in the world would you let anyone else define you? Why would you worry about someone who, who doesn't know you and let alone care about you? And what, why would you be concerned about what they think of you? Are you being rhetorical or are you being candid about this? Because I can no, answer I'm that being... question if you want an answer. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. Because I doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me either. And it's concerning to me because I've watched my kids grow up online. And by that, I mean, I watch the influences that come through social media to them. I watch the influences that come. We used to worry about television, right? But we worry about all the the ways in which kids are influenced these days that are different than how we were influenced when we grew up. And when you see the insidious way that advertising is 
slanted toward kids to show them what their self-image ought to look like, to tell them what they should be eating, to instruct them on how they should be thinking about certain kinds of other people in their worlds, you know, and then to uh, aggress, to use that as a verb, against them when they don't do that, to marginalize them when they don't do that. Mm -hmm. This is not great. This is this is no. not a great situation. And for me, no. that's the how that that is the answer to your question. How do things get like that? Because we have really poor defenses, you know, we we allow these things to happen and we trust that our kids are going to be able to sort it out. And I think by and large they will. But in the meantime, the ride is rocky, my friend. It's tough for a kid to grow up these days with a, with a sense of intrinsic self-image yeah. that isn't tainted by the by the internet. So my focus, my conversation today has been more to adults because I don't know how many kids are watching the show. Sure. <laughs> um, I do think kids uh, always pr prove to be exceptions in special cases. And I would understand why we want to have uh, systems and policies, uh, ways of approaching things where we are, are, are helping them navigate the, a very difficult world. But even in their case, I would not want to cripple my child by making them think that they, that being a victim is an admirable status. Something there we go. That's, that's where it comes back to adults. It's not admirable to be a victim, people. I'm going to say it. I don't like no. feeling like I'm a victim. Does anybody enjoy being a victim? No. And, and then claiming that as some sort of a birthright that gives you some power that is unique to you and your victimhood, mm -hmm. this doesn't work for me. That's just bass backwards. And, and I, I'm going to go one step further. So as, as if we haven't stepped in it bad enough here, I'm going to go one step further. Pride. We keep hearing this word pride. We're going to have pride parades and this, and that, and the other. Okay, go for it, you know. Um, but if at the first time that somebody says something you, you don't like, you wilt. That's not actual pride. Yeah. If you, if you, if you had actual pride, you wouldn't allow the opinion of people who don't like you to tear you down. You would power right through it and you would figure out how to get to your goals. And you would be more concerned about the attitudes and opinions of the people that are most important in your life. Right. Listen, yes. my wife yeah. says some looks at me funny. That's going to damage my moment. Okay. I care a lot what Susie thinks of me. Um, but somebody that I don't know who doesn't approve of my values, who wants to take a pot shot at me, you think I'm going to lose a second of sleep over that. I'm not going to let them have that. I don't want to let them occupy my brain. Don't let people live in your head rent free. Just don't. So, third party here, but Pride Parade in San Diego was a couple weekends ago, and it was amazing. And I was like working, so I couldn't go in it. But my wife and two of my stepkids were in the parade. And there were hecklers. There were some hecklers. But there weren't many of them. And the way that the parade, the entire parade dealt with these people, you know, screaming, you know, you're going to hell, you're gay, you don't belong in heaven. Uh, along the sides was to laugh was to enjoy the moment was to not to make fun of anybody mm -hmm. but just to stay with what mattered and what mattered was the joy of that experience and i i think that most americans most of the time feel this way about yep. the situations they confront i think we actually are fairly resilient and tough what has been interesting though is that everybody has been starting to guard themselves in a way that i think is awkward and uncomfortable it is it is man you're and, right and they're not asking questions anymore so these candid conversations that, that we would like to see where people ask questions and begin to discover one another and learn what makes people tick and whatever even if i don't agree with it 
has now been considered off limits. And there's actually uh, a, a, a methodology that's developed that says, I don't have to answer your questions. Now, this I is the think that's bad. Political correctness thing? Yes, yes. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, we talked about Rene Girard in the last episode, and we're going to keep coming back to Rene Girard again and again. We've got another episode planned on the scapegoat coming down, you know, a few weeks from now. But he had this concept called super Christianity. Okay, so explain that to me because I've seen it, but I don't really get it. Okay, so you know what political correctness is, right? Oh, Everybody yeah. here in the audience definitely has this idea that there's certain things that are verboten. We can't say them. And, and this is, to me, the sign that this has gone too far is that, you know, comedians can get canceled for making the wrong joke. Okay? Right, right. Okay, this is, like, I was just watching George, a classic George Carlin piece from 20 years ago, uh, a couple nights ago. And I was, and, and there's stuff that he said that. Yeah, you wouldn't say it today. And right. I mean, (laughs) yeah. And so, but you know what, it was comedy and it was funny. And at the time the audience got it. And I don't think we have as good a sense of humor right now. I think we're, there's this, this uh, in that. So Rene Girard suggested that political correctness was super Christianity. So super Christianity is, is basically a phony copy of the Christian empathy for the suffering and the impoverished. Okay. That wasn't the way the world operated until, uh, for the most part, like the Roman world didn't work this way until the Christians came into it. Okay. And the real purpose though, that they, that what they use the, this, uh, this empathy for the suffering and impoverished, this sympathy that they have, their real purpose is to gain power, especially political power. So super Christianity is leveraging a phony empathy to, Build your base. Build your base. You'll see a lot of symbolism in this. Instead of a lot of action, you'll see a lot of verbal, like look at me, virtue signaling as opposed to humble, quiet, behind the scenes action attached to it. Um, So if you compare that with the Christian virtues of uh, tolerance and radical forgiveness, and even uh, beyond that grace and love, um, the, the Christian perspective, and I don't know that this happens enough. I mean, I really do think that too much of Christianity itself has been politicized and we probably are going to have to deal with that in an upcoming episode too. Yes, please. We're called upon to carry a cross, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. These are not power moves. They're exact opposite of it. These are not virtue signal. This is not call attention to me. This is gosh, something went wrong here. How can I better serve you? Uh, the substitute to these things, this acquisition of power that comes with super Christianity, it, it ends up encouraging victimism because this becomes my, my class of people. These are now my followers, right? And you, we, they're literally taking spiritual energy, the suffering of individuals, and harnessing it to gain uh, power. And Gerard suggested that this was diabolical. I completely and agree. And that it literally led to scapegoating. What happens there was going to be violence eventually. You're going to run out of scapegoats. Yes. Ultimately, you won't have anybody left to blame. And then it's going to look at you anyway, but I digress. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so this concept goes so far that Christianity become, ends up becoming a form, a of, form oppression. of oppression. Yes. Yes. And therefore unnecessary. Like we yeah. don't, why would we want another oppressive system in the world? Okay. Yeah. And, I, and, and Christians have contributed, you know, Christians out there practicing have contributed to this, this way of thinking. They have come across as oppressive at times. Right. Yep. So I'm suggesting you know, but here in this particular situation, the super Christianity, you have people who are kind of uh, totalitarian in their in their intent or nature, who um, promise that they're going to deal, they're going to eradicate the uh, oppression. They are the real liberators. 
Uh, so they're going to identify and they're going to suppress all these other oppressors. Uh, but what they end up doing, and this is, this is how you see the scapegoating beginning to work. They get rid, they chuck aside due process and they stir up mobs to carry out judgment. There's, there's no trial. It's it, you're, we found the tweet that you put up 15, you know, it, it, when Twitter first started and now we've decided you're the enemy and we're going to send everybody to dox you and to make your life a miserable hell. Um, and we hope that you suffer and we hope that you lose your occupation, your livelihood, and we hope that your family ends up in tears because that's what you deserve for having done this, this, uh, committed this crime. Oh, did you apologize? Well, the Christian ethic would be forgiveness. No forgiveness for you. We are out to show that we truly fight oppression. We are the best oppression fighters out there and we've got to cancel you. And look how well that's working. Yes. I mean, seriously, has it brought any of us closer together in the last, I don't know, pick a time frame, four years, 20 years, 50 years? Has any of this worked? I mean, for the real people who deserve to be liberated, has it worked? It's worked for the power-hungry people who are able to leverage themselves to a higher place. Mm-hmm. But that's not serving me. I don't know. Is it serving you? Are you listening to this? Is it serving you? I, I don't think it, I don't think it's, I, I, the funny thing is, and in, in, there's a hierarchy in these things. And sooner or later, it seems like everybody's, you know, everybody's gotten, right? Yeah, yeah. This is a system that ultimately traps all of us. And, it, and it's fueled by something that's really insidious too, which is if I can't have mine, I'm going to make damn sure you don't get yours. Yes. And that's not, that's not anywhere near, near kind. Forget about religious you know, I can't imagine that there's anybody on earth that thinks that doing bad to you is a good thing for everybody in the end. Is there a system I'm, like I'm, that? I can't think of one. I am suggesting that there is a choice between individual forgiveness and grace and joining a mob. And I think people join the mob and sometimes because they don't want to become the victim of it. Like they kind of come into the back end of the mob and they cheer along too, or they duck their head and they don't speak up for the person that, that is the target of the mob because they recognize that they could be in the same position. Sure. We have language for this. We got it from the French. It's the reign of terror. Now, I, I, listen, in this phase, in this part of our life, nobody's getting their head cut off. But we have had people lose their jobs. We have had businesses shut down. We've had careers ended. We've had people. And, and what I'm suggesting to you is that if somebody says, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Or better yet, maybe we should just examine, you know, uh, maybe even show even a little bit more mercy. And I'm suggesting, I want to go back. I want to say to the tax collectors, to the lepers, to the people who are, uh, who do all of the bad things in, in, that we talked about uh, whether it was nationalists or communists or racists or the woke or homophobes or mandators, if we're going back and looking at all these people on either side of the aisle, that what we really ought to start trying to do is trying to understand and listen to these people. We ought to try to, to find out what makes them tick and why they think the way they do and, and, and to press them, to literally press them about what it is they believe and why. Like so, let them stand up to the scrutiny of it. If you silence these people, it just doesn't seem to work. We can't be it, quiet. It's it's too late to be quiet. No, I think that you actually have to, we have to have these real conversations. So, you know, a lot of the conversation, the first half of this conversation, we're focused on, on my desire as someone who has certain views to be more expressive of who I truly am 
and to face those consequences because I represent something. In fact, that's been most of this conversation, but there's the flip side of it too. Other people are not going to be what you expect them to be. And rather than shoot first and ask questions later, rather than write them off, um, ask them why. It's astonishing how that, by the way, sometimes that question will backfire. I'm not going to dispute that, right? They're not going to, some people are not going to take questioning well. Yep. Uh, You know, the guy at the car dealership didn't like when I was asking questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. But do it anyway, because maybe you're going to be the first person to help that person think. And let them come into forums and say what it is that they think, right? But don't let them do that without challenge. They should be challenged. We can't get to understanding unless there's you know, dialogue, and dialogue involves a challenge. It doesn't involve the kind of challenge that says you're wrong and that's it. It involves the kind of challenge that says, well, explain that to me, Jim, because I'm, I want to understand where you're coming from. Simple words, but they seem to have been missing from so many, so many conversations. So what's the incentive? How do we get people to the table? What are the grace points here to get people to come have dinner with us? I want to say, first off, there is a tremendous power and challenge in the notion of forgiveness. It's very, very difficult to forgive. And it's not supposed to be easy. And we weren't told it was going to be easy. That's why phrases like turn the other cheek, go the extra mile and take up your cross are used. It's, it's hard. This is hard business we're talking about. Yeah. And it goes both ways. I have to be willing to expose myself who I am a little bit and then be willing to take the abuse that might come my way as a result of that. And conversely, when someone else expresses something that I know is wrong or bad, deleterious, um, I should try instead of just shutting them down to try to find out what it is that motivates and makes them tick and give them challenge uh, on this. And then secondly, Roger Scruton, um, whether you agree with his politics or not, uh, offers the following quote that, to, that really spoke to me. He says, can we reject the idea of a benevolent God and still hold on our inherited morality founded on respect for the other and the absolute authority of truth? Can we adopt the posture of forgiveness without turning to the supreme example that was once given to us? I have purposely referred to Jesus in this conversation, not because I'm trying to convert you to join some church. This is not a religious appeal I'm making here. I'm suggesting that there was a life that was very well lived. And even if you don't necessarily believe that that life was lived, like even if you're like questioning, did Jesus exist or is he God or whatever, there's still a model and exemplar there for us to follow. These points that I'm using, the things that I'm saying are part of a tradition that's been handed down to us, been very powerful, that developed the Western world in a very specific way. And this is the best of us. This is the best of who we can be. And I think that's the model. And if, if we're going to chuck all of this aside and we're going to treat uh, faith and we're going to treat Jesus in particular, if we're going to go crucify him once again, you know, metaphorically speaking. Right. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to scapegoat him because of the behavior, by the way, of some people who are religious and who behave badly, who've been judgmental. If we're going to do that, we're doing that at our own expense. We are literally removing the possibility of forgiveness and grace. And I am sitting here before you today as somebody who's transformed and learned different things along the way, because I looked at every single person in the following way. And I'm, I'm trying to get better, consciously better about doing this, but I've looked at people in the following way. This person's a child of God. This person's a creation, a unique image of God. So I'm not, in my sales pitch here, I want to say, I, I, I encourage faith. I encourage you to believe. 
but I'm, that's not my point here. It isn't to try to get you to some church. It's not to get you to start giving to some church or belong to some institutional religion or to vote for the Republican or Democrat parties. My appeal to you here is that Christ provided a life example and God made us in his image. And these things cause me to say, the people that you meet, the people that you know, every human being you meet is in that image. And recognizing that is the first step to wisdom. And that wisdom is grace. It's a forgiveness potluck, people. And you're invited. And it only works in real life. I can't think of a way that this could work on social media. you got to be together face-to-face to get the practice that's going to make a difference. And you know, we're going to say things that are offensive. Just forgive us. We're going to get your pronouns wrong. Forgive us. We're going to sound like heretics, religious, financial, political, whatever, you name it. Forgive us. We might offend your pride, your customs, your sensibilities, your opinions, your beliefs. Just forgive us. Why? Jim, you said it. I think it's because how stuff gets done. That's how things really work. It's how we get to know, like, and trust one another, people. It's, it's if I'm willing to get it wrong so that together you and me can get it right, that single thing is enough to make forgiveness work and make dialogue happen. So pull up a chair. Dinner's ready. If this meal is for you, do the social media thing. Like, subscribe, comment. We do actually read all the comments and respond to the good ones. And do one more thing. Share. Offer some grace. Until next time, be well. Aho.